you are listening to Give Me the Bible with Len. Today's program is entitled Two Sons Plus. Hello my radio friends I'm so glad you've joined me again to hear more from God's Word, the Bible No doubt you've read stories or seen films about where where the bad guys seem to be doing well and the good guys seem to lose But with some turn of events the good guys triumph in the end How do you feel? as you read or watch what happens. I feel stressed when the good guys who deserve to succeed suffer defeat, but very relieved when things turn out well in the end. What I want to share with you today is about bad guys and good guys. There are two Bible stories, both parables told by Jesus. A parable, as you probably know, is a short story, either true or made up, that illustrates a point. Story 1 is from Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 to 32. But first, the setting. Jesus had been to Jerusalem. At the temple he had driven out all those unscrupulous traders who had rackets going. They had been selling animals and birds for sacrifices at exorbitant prices in the temple courtyard to the worshippers who had come long distances to worship. Besides that, they had a money exchange business going, exchanging foreign coins for temple money. The temple money was given as an offering for the upkeep of the Levites and also for maintenance of the temple. Somehow I think the exchange rates were heavily in favour of the traders. But the worst thing of all was that the priests, who were to preserve the sanctity of the temple and its services, were in on the deal receiving substantial commissions from all the sales. When the ruckus from Jesus clearing the temple courtyard had died down, the priests and elders later confronted Jesus, asking, "Uh, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? It's found at Matthew 21, 23. You see, the priests and elders thought they had the authority and Jesus was making it look bad for them. In actual fact, Jesus was the authority. A little after that, Jesus told this parable. A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not but afterwards he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second son and said likewise, and he answered and said, 
I go, sir. But he did not go. Then Jesus asked his audience of Jewish leaders, which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, the first. Jesus said to them, Assuredly I say to you, that tax collectors and harlots entered the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you see it, you did not relent and believe him. Straight away, Jesus followed this up with another parable. But the Jews knew what the parable meant, because it tells us in verse 45 of that same chapter, they realized that Jesus was talking about them because they wanted to seize him and kill him. And we'll deal with that part a bit later in the program. The work in the Father's vineyard was to believe, obey, and be a witness for God. If you know anything about the history of the Jewish nation as God's chosen people, they failed miserably most of the time. Much of the time the Jews worshipped pagan idols and were punished for it. From time to time there was a reformation, but it didn't last for very long. As Jesus told the parable, the Jews were represented as the second son who said, I go, but did not. The Jews failed to carry out their responsibility. In verse 43 of Matthew 21, speaking to his Jewish audience, Jesus said, Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and be given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. The first son represents the non-Jews, the Gentiles, who, although had nothing to do with the work of God at first, later believed and became, as described in 1 John 3, 2, as sons of God. Since Calvary, Christians have been given the task of spreading the knowledge of salvation among the unsaved. So if you are a Christian, you have a responsibility to spread the good news about the Creator God, of how Jesus became a substitute for repentant sinners, about the forgiveness of sin, and about God's intention to have his people dwell with him for the ceaseless ages of eternity. But there is another aspect to the parable Jesus told, and it's this. There are many people who have access to the Bible, the Word of God. In it, they have truth. Sometimes, uh, no, many times, and in the majority of cases, these Bible-professing people, like the second son in the parable, disregard both their responsibilities and practices regarding that truth. Here's an example. Way back at creation, 
God instituted the seventh day of the week as the day of worship. That was reiterated in the Ten Commandments. It was further reiterated by the prophets, by Jesus himself, and by the apostles and New Testament writers. Like the second son in the parable, the majority of Christians, although many know that the seventh day of the week, that's Saturday, is the day of worship, they've substituted Sunday instead and keep that. Some people have come up with arguments supporting Sunday worship, but you will not find any directive in the Bible saying the day of worship has been or should be changed. Church leaders from practically all denominations support and maintain that Saturday is the day God designated as the holy day. In my opinion, it's not enough to say, Oh, I believe in God. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I go to church sometimes, that's all I need to do. My friends, that attitude is like that of the second son in Jesus' parable. That son did not do the will of his father. And this cheap grace concept that is so prevalent in this day and age among partial Christians is dangerous. It is a breeding ground for complacency. To such people who avoid their responsibilities to God and avoid obeying him fully, he says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. That's from Revelation 3, verse 16. We must be doers of the word not like the second son who said he would go, but ended up doing nothing about it. Now, the second parable from Matthew 21, verse 33 and on, is headlined, The Wicked Vine Dressers. And this is the parable as Jesus told it. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers so that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than at first, and they did likewise to them. Then, last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, Oh, they'll respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said to themselves, Ah, oh, this is the son and heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him, and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Jesus asked his audience, Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? 
And then they, that's the Jews, said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. In the primary sense, Jesus was applying this parable to the Jewish nation, the nation God chose to represent him to all the other nations. But history bears out that they failed. The servants sent to collect the fruit were the prophets and the scriptures that God provided to guide and warn his people through the years. And how did the Jews regard the prophets? They mistreated many and killed some. Those priests and elders listening to Jesus knew enough about their national history to know what he said was true. As leaders, those listening recognised that they too were involved in not doing God's will and had not surrendered their hearts to him. They had built up around themselves thick walls of tradition. They imagined they were doing God's will through all the forms and ceremonies they practised, but that was not enough. God does not just want lip service. He wants our hearts, our emotions, our allegiance and everything we are. We are to give ourselves to him unreservedly. It's interesting that the people who went into partnership with the landowner were called vine dressers. We'll identify who they were a little later.
Before the break, I asked, what is a vine dresser? In modern parlance, it's a vineyard worker, someone who prunes the vines, waters, weeds, picks the fruit, and all the other jobs needed to be done. You will have probably noticed that the owner of the vineyard was the one who planted the vines, who built the wine press, the tower, and provided the other infrastructure needed for successful grape growing. But, like happens with farmers who go into share farming arrangements, the landowner had others work in his vineyard. And I just want to explain to you about share farming. A farmer may own some land, but for whatever reasons may not wish to sow the crop and reap it. And it's not uncommon for farmers to go into an arrangement where a neighbouring farmer sows the crop on his land. When the harvest is ripe, the landowner and the share farmer share the profits. At one stage, my dad was involved in share farming. One farmer provided the land and the other the labour. It seems that according to the parable, there was a similar arrangement with the vineyard. The vine dressers would have been entitled to their share of the grape harvest and the landowner his. As was said earlier, when the grape harvest was ready, the landowner sent his servants but they were beaten up and some were killed. In desperation, the landowner sent his son in the hope that the vine dressers would respect him. But no, they did not. Instead, they took him out of the vineyard and killed him. Who do you think that son represented? It was Jesus himself. Who wanted to kill Jesus? It wasn't the Romans. It was the Jews. Who took responsibility for Jesus' death? Again, it was the Jews. The Jews urged the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, to have Jesus crucified. In Matthew 27, verses 24 and 25, Pontius Pilate announced to the assembled Jewish mob, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be upon us and and on our children. And they got what they wanted. By rejecting Jesus as their saviour, they, in turn, were rejected by God. How could God have the people who killed his son 
represent him. Keeping them on would be like a defence lawyer, the one hired to to prove you're innocent, put forth evidence to prove your guilt. (laughs) Who would want to have a lawyer like that? Romans chapter 2 and verse 13 puts all this parable and the history of the Jews into perspective. It says, For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. And then James chapter 1 and verse 24 adds this, Whoever looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed. In the secondary sense, this parable applies to you and me in this day and age. If you reject Jesus as did the Jews, God will reject you. Furthermore, if you do not do God's will, then you in reality are his enemy and you will have no part in his kingdom. If you only desire to do part of what God wants, then you're also in jeopardy. Now, I've heard it publicly stated that God's law, the Ten Commandments, have been done away with. So those people feel that they are therefore no longer applicable or binding and they don't have to do anything about it. But saying that shows a lack of understanding of what the Bible really says, and it's a cop-out. Here are the implications of such thinking. If there is no law, then there's no sin. And if there's no sin, there's no accountability. And if there's no sin or accountability, then there's no need of a saviour. And if there's no need of a saviour, then why are Christians going to church, celebrating Christmas and Easter, and going through all the forms of religion? To me, it just doesn't make sense. With God, it's all or nothing. You can't have your cake and eat it too. And you can't sit on a fence. You can't be a part Christian. If so, are you to expect part salvation? My friends, I urge you, whether you're a Christian or not, to give serious thought to where you stand in relation to God, to his will, and to your obedience. Don't be like the Jews to whom Jesus spoke these two parables, who were merely hearers of God's word. Become a doer. And if this means making some changes in your life, with God's help, make those changes. My friends, don't fool yourself that by drifting along you'll be okay. You need to make the necessary changes. You can't just keep on having a form of godliness because that never fools 
God. Your ultimate reward or punishment depends on what you decide and what you do. We've got to stop for today. I realise that I've challenged you to make a full commitment to the Lord and for some of you that might be a struggle. But in all sincerity I urge you to take the necessary steps to do what the Apostle Peter has said in 2 Peter 1.10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. So, until next time then, this is Len, wishing you the courage to go with your convictions. I also wish you God's blessings and the peace that comes from being committed to him who loves you so very much.